0: Welcome to Radio TFS, episode number 144. This is Greg Duncan.
1: And this is Martin Woodward. Hey, Martin. How you doing, sir?
0: Good. It's only been a week.
1: Did I you miss know. He's great.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, so anything exciting happened this week for you?
1: Uh, uh, Willie was off, so I had to do the, the uh, community roundup post for the um, you know, the DevOps blog. So I was awfully glad of the Radio TFS show notes, which I blatantly stole from. So um, apologies for uh, preempting all the all the you know some of the news articles there. But here we go. Some of the good stuff hadn't come out in time, so it was all good.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, we've got two great guests coming on the show today guests that are perfect for me I, I hopefully they're good for you listeners too but uh i once i heard that they wanted to come on the show and were available it was like oh yeah we got to get these guys because
1: see this is why we create the podcast for purely selfish reasons and um <laughs> it works out well you get to learn as we learn so this is
0: good exactly so our first guest is rogan ferguson rogan is a program manager working on visual studio team services and the team foundation server Rogan primarily works on scenarios to drive enterprise adoption to VSTS and helping to improve the framework that VSTS and TFS are built on. In his spare time, Rogan enjoys practicing martial arts, hobbyist video game development, and traveling. Our second guest is Dan Hellman. Dan is a senior program manager for Microsoft's Visual Studio Team Services. I said that like with a question mark. See, I told you guys I was going to butcher this. It's like, no, for Microsoft Team Services... Dan focuses his time in the Agile space and customer adoption of the service. Before coming to Microsoft in 2012, Dan spent his career building applications using Microsoft Technologies and assembling Agile teams centering on developing and delivering high-quality software to the users.
2: Dan and Rogan, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having us
1: on.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Greg. So
1: that was Rogan. And then, Dan, say hi to everybody.
2: Hey, everybody. This is Dan. And it's actually Dan Hellum, not Hellman, like the mayonnaise It's a little different. But it's a a (laughs) comic, (laughs)
1: honestly.
2: Every time somebody says it, I have to eat a sandwich. It's weird. (laughs) Well, it's
0: not going to be a show if I don't butcher somebody's name. So,
1: Oh, there's plenty of time yet. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, we do the news very light, and then we'll go into the interviews. Would that be good?
0: Yeah, that sounds great.
1: Cool. So, I mean, um, luckily, as I say, I, even though I stole a bunch of articles uh, for the the, the community roundup on the DevOps blog, uh, luckily a lot of this stuff hadn't come in in time when I when I stole that on Friday. So, thanks very much. Um, the first one we should probably talk about is um, and Anne's posted the Sprint One Twenty One update. So, uh, Dan and Rogan, if you want to pile in on this, then then feel free um, to talk about your favourite things in the Sprint One Twenty One update. But the highlights are um, w- wikis. Woo! Much request. <laughs> wikis we now have available so any any comments on the wikis have you guys been using them much yet
2: so we've been using it a little bit within the one ES um scenario so internally we've had a lot of teams like jumping in on the wiki because they don't want to build their own so uh this is a huge exciting item for guys like our uh, microsoft it and office and windows
1: yeah uh, for me i like the i like the diff that they have in there that was quite you know when you're doing a revert you get like a side by side diff that it's using from version control that was that was pretty cool um and it's all the syntax is it's is it markdown based it's not the wiki syntax is it it's markdown is that right
2: yeah it's, mar- it's sure Markdown. it's
1: marked yeah cool um and then um so there's wiki's there is the um We've got the Ansible integration. That's got that's that been announced as well. So that's available in the in the marketplace now. Um, so you can, you know, go run a playbook and do all that Ansible stuff. So that's there. Um, right. you, I, don't,
0: I don't want to say this out loud, but what is Ansible?
1: Uh, it's one of the DevOps orchestrators. You know when we were doing, um, uh, like, configuration is code stuff we, we, when we had that episode? Uh, Ansible right, like and kind of
0: stuff? Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, more like Chef. And PowerShell, GSG, and those sorts of things. That's how I think of it in that kind of category. I don't know. Am I right, guys? Or do, or is that, am I about the uh, most knowledgeable on that one?
2: Yeah, I'm with Greg. I don't know anything about it.
1: Okay, um, basically, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's a bit like that. You 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 have configurations and then orchestration steps, and then you roll them out to different nodes. And it's a way of a way of doing that in a cluster of machines. Um, so you can like configure your systems and then deploy the software to them and stuff. So. It's very similar to chef really, I guess, and, and uh PowerShell D H D. We should get somebody on from Ansible to tell us all about it. How about that? <laughs> Ryan, right, I'm gonna move on before before because now yes. now you've limited my knowledge of Ansible and that's about <laughs> it really. Um, we had a bunch of work around uh, in the version control space, so specifically um, the some stuff around pull request extensibility, so some new APIs are available for pull request workflows and things, and a whole bunch of work around uh, branch management, so being able to see stale branches, being able to see the, you know, looking at the pushes page, we've really helped identify that and being able to restore a branch as well, which is pretty neat um so yeah that's that's very very useful indeed so take definitely take a look at that one um And then uh, the exploratory testing traceability, And then finally, a small tweak, but one that a lot of our internal teams are using heavily as well, is uh, filtering on um, Kanban boards and being able to, um, so when when you're playing with your Kanban boards, do that sort of stuff. It works across test cases as well. And make sure you're consistent in terms of those filtering. And, uh, and a nice keyword filter as well. I don't know about that. I'm guessing that was an internal, internally driven feature as well, Dan. I guess a lot of people are asking for that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, I, I might yeah, have asked for it several times.
1: <laughs> well, now it's there. So there we go.
3: So that's kind of a highlight. Um, the, the,
1: the big sort of uh, elephant in the room, uh, Brian Harry addressed as well over on his blog, um, he basically... The features you're starting to see now, if you take a look at the features timeline, these ones are showing up in um, TFS vNext now, um, and they updates. So the TFS 2017 and the updates to TFS when 2017, kind of that that uh, ship has sailed now, and so all the new significant feature work is probably going to go into the TFS vNext, um, which we'll be moving to release candidates for in the future, but. Um, doesn't help you if you're on TFS 2017 and, you know, you're going to be staying there for a while. So just so you're aware.
2: And what you should be doing is just moving to VSTS, <laughs> talking about data import.
1: Yes, let's talk about how to do that
2: very, very soon. How's that transition for
0: you? <laughs> really? Martin, we should ask somebody on the team to talk to us about
1: that. Yeah, we should. Let's get them on the
0: show. We've got another quick article from uh, Grant Fitchy.
1: Grant Fritchie? Fritchy, I don't know, but Grant, anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah, Grant, there's no L, so I was going to avoid that one. Just a a nice um, post if you're doing the DevOps, and one of the biggest problems that I have, especially for on-prem type development, line of business development, is that database provisioning. You know, how, how do you provision that database in your DevOps scenario, either for unit testing or integration to the unit testing for integration testing? And this is from Redgate. So, of course, they're talking about their SQL clone product, but still, it's a good way to look at it. If you're interested, if you're thinking about that, you're wondering what that kind of performance hit on it, if you're doing a you know, backup restore or if you want to thinking about doing a clone, they talk about it here in this article.
1: Very cool. Um, over on the uh, support blog, um, Trevor Hancock, who's uh, uh, the guys will know really well, he's one of our uh, best support people and, and very vocal as well, and gets a lot of stuff out there sharing people. He was um, blogging about um, troubleshooting some. Um, well, actually, no. Sorry, it wasn't him. It was Manuel Galido, but it was he's a colleague of Trevor's. So um, he was posting about uh, the um, some how to debug some authentication problems with Team Explorer Everywhere. So as listeners to the show know, Team Explorer Everywhere was the former um, stuff I used to work on, a a baby of mine in the past. And um, the way that you connect to VSTS typically is by doing an OAuth flow. Um, and. Well, not not really. It kind of it, the way it happens is it it uses the browser and it fires up an instance of the um, the browser on your system, and then uses that browser to kind of help you authenticate in to VSTS. Using the browser auth mechanisms, and then once that succeeds, it gets those credentials and moves them over into the Eclipse instance, and then then you're authenticated through. However, um, and sets up some credentials and things like that, so that's all good. Um, problem is if that fails, and it can fail um, sometimes. The most common exact reason why it fails is on different platforms um, there's weirdnesses in the way that the browsers interoperate um, and, and you know just weirdnesses in the way that what Eclipse has access to so there's a couple of sort of fallback mechanisms if if the out the box mechanism just doesn 't work straight away um, there's the ability to enable device flow authentication. And this is a a handy feature that's there within OAuth device flow um, that you can enable by setting a... Um, a configuration parameter in your Eclipse uh, file, in your Eclipse.ini file, and then when you try to authenticate it actually gives you a pop-up window that says go to aka.ms whack device login, and when you do that you get like um, a code which is, expires, so this is a way of you know, and then you go over to the browser, you type that in, and then it, it, it knows that the person who knocked on the door and got this code is you, and you've authenticated, so then it allows you in, and that, that all sets up, so hopefully that works, and then finally, if that doesn't work, you can actually um, create a personal access token. Uh, we talked about the screens for that last in last week's show. Um, how they've been improved. When you create one of those, you can actually store that in your Windows Credential Manager or in your Credential Manager of choice on your operating system, and then it'll use those when it's connecting into VSTS. In um, kind of you know stick them in the HTTP headers as it's connecting in. So yep, yeah, a couple of different ways of a sort of troubleshooting out. The best way to go is the device login mechanism. Um, if, and that should work, you know, that should, that should always work, but just in case it doesn't, there's another, another backup option there, belt and braces.
0: Just listening to you said, okay, yeah, that's why we have a troubleshooting guide for that. Yep. Okay. Uh, really quickly, Gordon Beaming, occasional co-host, Gordon, I'm giving you a hard time. Gordon, uh, Gordon, Gordon Bueller did this really cool post on searching VSTS and TFS, the code search and work item search, how to use the, chrome search providers to search your code or your repository so if you've ever thought about that if you've set up your own custom search provider uh, or you hate just going to oh, i want to search the code and i need to go to vsts and i need to click on code i need this check out his post it gives you nice cool gordon-like instructions
1: very cool thanks gordon and um, I've been doing a lot of interviewing lately as uh, we're hiring on the team. So go to aka.ms, whack VSTS jobs if you want to come work on the VSTS team. But uh, we've been in a lot of interviews. And Angela Stringfellow actually has a blog post up about um, interview questions. And I'm normally not a big fan of these types of posts because, you know, you end up with like a list of of pop quiz questions. You know, can you tell me what Ansible is? Things like that. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> But we would all fail and yet with magically we've got a job on the show, you know, job working on this stuff. So what's the deal? But the thing that Angela recommends is actually a couple of her questions very open ended. Um, one of which is, you know, tell me what DevOps is, um, and what's the need for DevOps and I quite like that because she highlights that a correct answer is that it's not it's not just about the particular tools. You know, it's not about continuous delivery. It's not about using um, a configuration as code tool like Chef or, Pu- or Puppet or Ansible or something. It's about, uh, you know, people processes and all that sort of stuff. It's about having comm- highlighting communication between the developers and the ops teams and the customers and delivering that continuous flow of value to your customers. Um, so yeah, it was it was actually a, a good post with some links to stuff. So I kind of wish I'd uh, wish I'd read that sooner before I started interviewing people. Uh,
0: we've talked about the um, report from a Puppet about the your interview for DevOps. I, when I saw this, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because it's a very focused article. It's the first annual retrospective report published. Now, unless you're a Scrum Master or or somebody who's deep into agile, you're probably thinking, you know, kill me now because uh, you know, your retros are painful. And that's where this report will come in to help you and help the Scrum Masters make your retrospectives better. Here's the things that are, people are doing, people are not doing. It's a very short report. It's a PDF. It's only like um, 13 pages long, and it's a lot of pictures. A lot of graphs, so it's very easy to grok and understand. If you're doing the retrospectives, if you think you're doing them right, check out this report. If you think you're doing them wrong, check out this report. If you're not doing them, check out this report. And, Martin, I think we're out of news stories, man.
1: That'll do. Should we move on to the chat with Dan and Rogan? They've been waiting patiently.
0: Yep, I think that I think this is the time. So, first of all, though, listeners, when we say data import, we're th- we're saying high fidelity data import.
1: Well, let's talk about that. So, you know, when when you're moving to VSTS is one way, which is just to move to VSTS. You know, just take a dump of your code and move over. But um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit first, uh, guys, about what what the TFS data import is and what it does?
3: Yeah, yeah no, I'd be actually, more than happy to talk about it. Uh, yeah, so ahead, ahead. Uh, the the fun name for this, this, is actually the TFS database import service for Visual Studio Team Services. And you would gotcha. not believe how many times I took me to practice in front of the mirror to say that very quickly. <laughs> uh, but effectively, it's a way of, so we have a, various ways you can go about migrating to VSTS. There's kind of a manual copy way where you just kind of take tip of your code and grab some work items back into Excel and move them in. You, you lose a lot of your history. What we were trying to accomplish was a way for you to move from TFS to VSTS and bring all of your history or as close to as 100% of your history as possible. And, and really, it's a lift and shift operation where the collection is a container and we take that collection and we effectively hitch it onto that. The way I always like to describe it in the early days was it's like doing a detach on prem and doing an attach to a brand new VSTS account in the cloud and your data is just magically there.
1: And that's how it kind of feels. I know there's a lot of magic behind the scenes, which we'll go into in a minute, but that's definitely kind of the experience. And um, as somebody who's coming in to the STS from TFS, Dan, what sort of things do people run into typically? And, you know, is it all plain sailing or is there, are there any gotchas when people are doing that migration? Bearing in mind Greg's thinking about doing it. Well, Oscar, <laughs> Greg's compatriot, is thinking about doing it any, uh, sometime soon
2: yeah so uh just to be clear like between Rogan and I so um, I focus a lot on uh, the process template stuff and, and that people run into when they do data migration, and then Rogan basically is kind of the p m that handles everything else so uh, and unfortunately, for most people who have trouble, it's usually around process templates right exactly. You know, the biggest issue people have is, uh, and I think the most common thing that we run into is, you know, somebody starts on a, really an old version of, two, you know, 2005, 2008, 2010. They have these old process templates, um, and they don't really upgrade them over the years, and then they want to go ahead and, and uh, migrate. So they may update TFS, which is great, but guess what they didn't do? They didn't update the templates anytime recently, so they run this TFS migrator tool, and it goes and checks it, and they just get a whole slew of errors and problems. And most of those are a result of, like, look, we made a bunch of changes over the years and you haven't updated your process template well guess what you know you got to do those manual updates um, and so that's where the most people run into problems um, uh, and issues with when it comes to data import which is just the process template is just has problems in it and they got to go ahead and manually fix those using wood admin commands uh, fix it rerun tfs migrator again double checks it for you make sure everything's legit and eventually get to a state where it gives you the thumbs up and then you can go ahead and migrate over
0: so if you've if you have like my, one of my favorite templates is the Dungeons and Dragons uh, process template. If you have that and that is four or five years old, and you want to import to VSTS, is that going to be is, is that going to be a nightmare?
2: No, it, most likely not, right? And so the things that you typically will run into um, if you have an old process template is you're missing some things like um, it doesn't have the features back. So it doesn't have portfolio backlogs in the uh, configuration file. Or you're missing, um, or sometimes like if you have a really old process template, the fields have been renamed slightly. So uh, even system fields where they add spaces and things like that, and you'd have to just update those. So a lot of times that's just doing a wit admin change field. And once you change the field once, the fields are globally scoped for the whole collection. So you just rename it for basically everything and everything's good. Um, So we fully support, customized processes there's no problem there um but again it just has to adhere to these rules because you know as you know in tfs you can create these crazy dungeons and dragons process (laughs) templates and people use them but then they can also get themselves in trouble um and so what we try to do is we kind of put these limits and restrictions on um inside of vsts to prevent bad things from happening
1: so rogan do you want to just walk us through like what an import process would look like what sort of so we've talked about running this this uh, pre tool. So what, what, how, how do you go about doing an import?
3: Yeah, sure. So the the very first thing I recommend to everyone is go download our migration guide. And I, I feel like we'll have links uh, at the end of the show that you can go grab to, to get all that stuff. Um, and that's going to be kind of the thing that walks you through a lot of the steps. But essentially, you know, step one is you need to make sure you're on one of the two supported versions for importing. We, we support latest RTW releases, um, so if you're someone that does like to jump on, you know, release candidates and whatnot, just be forewarned. We we don't have support right now for those on on imports. Uh, so right now, our currently supported releases are update two of 2017 and update one of 2017. And once you're on one of those versions, then you just kind of go through this whole validate, prepare and then import process where the validate and you know, this kind of maps logically to the commands that are in TFS Migrator. Validate will check your process templates and check other aspects of the collection to kind of make sure that it's okay and healthy to import to VSTS. Prepare generates those files that you need to import to so your identity map. Your import specification file, which kind of has an underground name that is kind of sprung up called the import.json file. Um, that allows you to specify, you know, how you where you want to import your collection to, you know, Central US, West Europe, East Australia, those kind of things. Where VSTS is supported, as well as kind of telling us, hey, here's where my source database is up here in Azure that I went and uploaded, and uh, you know, this is what I want my account name to be. And then the import command does what you think, you know, the big big game day command. It actually goes ahead and runs that import. Uh, for you. And then the end result is uh, an account you can use in VSTS. And currently we hand out these things called import codes as part of this public preview, which we're in. Um, And you know, one import code lets you do a dry run, which I I highly recommend you always do. I I see a lot of people, we kind of call them shotgun imports. Um, I I say it's never wise just to go straight to a production import, uh, especially when you got to tell your boss on Monday why it didn't work. But, you know, you can do these dry run imports and they kind of give you a short lived account, which you can go and validate that everything looks OK and that you're comfortable with what the import process does uh, and that you're satisfied that everything and you can get working again on Monday very quickly. And then you can use your production code to actually go ahead and actually import and have a production account that stays around forever that you and your team can start using and switch over with.
0: Uh, so those import codes. So you don't, I, for whatever reason, thought that you just, you know, we created a company named uh, visual com, and we have our repo up there. We're playing with it. Um, You know, I thought we would take our database and import it into there. So that's not what you do when you're doing a dry run.
3: Yeah, no. So what we highly suggest you, if you have a name that you, you really love, like, you know, star (laughs) trek.visualstudio.com, then, you know, yeah, I'm a star Trek fan. So I told my team I would slip in a Star Trek joke there somewhere. Um, you know, we, we, we recommend going and reserving the name or squatting on it by going to VisualStudio.com and just creating an account. But when you actually do the import, you have to import to an account that doesn't exist uh, okay. at that time. And that, that decision was really made. We just wanted to, you know, as many times as I could tell you, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? We really just wanted to avoid a situation where someone comes in and, you know, Tuesday morning, someone's like, hey, Greg, what happened to the uh, to the account we were all working on? Oh, I deleted it so I could do my import. Um, so we always require you to go to a brand new account there. Uh, but, you know, of course, once you finish your import, you can do a name swap and rename, you know, Star Trek to something else. I don't know, maybe Star Wars if you want to. And something then, cooler you know, like Star Wars,
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, no, Dan. I talked about this.
1: Well. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we, we have the, a thing. um." Do we, to do a name swap, is that a like, contact support thing?
3: How does that work? Oh, no, yeah, no, you can, you can do this yourself. Uh, you can either delete the account that you created to kind of hold on to that name, or you can rename it. Uh, and of course, uh, one good tip at the call out here, uh, is it generally takes an hour after you either delete that account or rename it, the one that you use to reserve that name, before you can reclaim that name in the account you just imported. So you want to make sure you kind of take that into account.
0: Side note, related to that, best practice for companies, because it's you know, one name for project collection, if you're thinking about multiple project collections in VSTS, your naming conventions should take that into account from very first, Correct.
3: Uh, I mean, it's going to be up to each, each company. I, I personally have seen some companies that have multiple collections where the names just are straight up department names, and there's no real similarity. But most most customers will come up with some naming schema. So you can imagine like Starfleet-Academy, Starfleet-Shipyard, Starfleet Academy, Starfleet Shipyard, Starfleet, you know, that kind of moniker there. I see very commonly, so they can kind of distinguish, you know, hey, these all belong to us. And I, I think this will get easier as well as organizations roll out and you're able to kind of wrap all these accounts together. Um, I think it'll definitely make that, you know, kind of understanding that all these belong to a single you know organization, a lot easier to comprehend and kind
0: of discover. And do we need to worry about that now? If we want to jump today, the organizational support, I don't know if we talked about much organizational support on the show.
3: Uh, so I, I wouldn't say you wouldn't, you don't really need to worry about it. So organization support in the future will be backed off your AAD tenant. And when you do an import, we link, the accounts you import with to to an A to your company's AAD tenant. So as long as you're using the same AAD tenant, then you're you're good to go. So if you if I went and imported everything into the Starfleet tenant, then I would you know when organizations becomes available, I'll be able to roll all those accounts up underneath that that single organization.
0: Perfect. All right. So, so this would be totally a uh, sidetracked. That that was on the dry runs. Once you do dry runs,
3: then you want to do production, production runs. Yep.
0: Right. Or another
3: dry run. Anything. I see some people do that. <laughs>
0: anything uh, anything different with that production run or is it exactly the same you're just giving it a new uh, name i
3: mean it's exactly the same the only difference is you know your your skin's kind of on the line i guess if you're boss on monday morning (laughs) if it's in or not but effectively a dry dry run account and a production account there's nothing really that different with them besides the fact that a dry run account is short-lived so they'll be around for 15 or 21 days and then they automatically kind of get cleaned up and You know, that's just really if if you feel like you need a long time to do your validations, we always suggest running another dry run just so that way, you know, in case a new data shapes enter your collection or you change your process templates or something drastic's happened to your collection, you know, as you're continuing your validations, you still get confidence that everything is still working fine on that import process.
0: During that dry run and you're doing that, those, you know, post run checks, do you actually recommend people point their builds at it, point their releases at it, do all of that? During, yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, I recommend you, you use as much as you can, you know, especially because when you move to VSTS, I'm assuming you're going to want all your builds to be running on day one. So it's probably good to make sure that, you know, hey, are we going to run into any potential complications that we didn't think about? Maybe we have on our machines, maybe there's a proxy or something that is stopping them from connecting to VSTS that we never took into account for. So there's all these things that can kind of happen outside of the scope of, a, you know, a migration. If they you know That could happen even if they wouldn't sign signed up for a VSTS account regularly. But, you know, it's good to kind of make sure that you can feel comfortable that you you can get your builds and releases running again. Because, you know, one of the things you do have to do with builds is you have to, you have to go reconnect all those agents, make sure that works. Um, so I, I say use it as much as you can. But, you know, there's always those customers that just kind of look at it and go, oh, cool, it worked. All right, let's do the production run. And, you know, that, if that works for them, that's great.
0: Uh, sounds like my upgrade from 2015 to 2017. It's like, oops, oh, shit, am I actually upgrading? Oh, okay, well, it works. So we're good. <laughs>
1: That was the rip out, rip out, rip the disc out the SCSI mirror moment. That would have been for me, but you just went for it. Good on you. <laughs>
0: um, all right. You've done that production run. You, you, you've, the import is complete. The post-production stuff, we already talked about the private agents, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, point that at it. You just basically run configure agents and point it at the new URL. And-
3: yep. You, you will have to recreate your pools as well. Um to, and slot those agents into the pools after you reconnect them. Um, you know, there there are a couple things today that, you know, that's probably a good segue into this conversation that aren't included in the import process. It's, it's a very minor set um, that will be included in the future. And I think one of the ones I get asked on, a, on an hourly basis is when are we getting release release? Um, you know, and that, you know, for, for now, that's something that you have to kind of go manually copy, unfortunately. Um, but it is something that we will have uh, soon in the future. And a few other things as well, like, you know, making sure developers go to Visual Studio and connect to the new account, um, you know, through the uh, Team Explorer experience, it can connect, pull down code and all that fun stuff. But for the most part, the the kind of post steps have been kept very minor. I've actually been quite happy. To, to see that a lot of people can get up and running very quickly after, after a production import.
1: And, and, you know, people with organizations with lots of people as well. It's not just, you know, small companies and things doing this. There's some, been some seriously, seriously big companies moved over with, with this migration tool, and it kind of magically worked.
0: So i got a question for you. People who've written internal apps using the, the TFS object model, uh, now we move them, those uh, projects up to the cloud, are those? Are we going to have weird problems with those for authentication, maybe, or?
2: Yeah, so I, I'm not 100 sure. <laughs> it's kind enough.
0: of not really but a fair question, that, is it?
2: Well, I'm not as sure how much has been announced yet, either, with it. So I got to be a little careful. Um, okay. I think the plan is is that the object model kind of is eventually going to go away, right? And we want everybody to start using the REST APIs or the client libraries. Uh, that are built on the REST APIs for anything inside TFS uh, or eventually TFS, but also obviously everything in VSTS. And so um, I think right now everything will will work, um, but, you know, knowing that in the future, you know, if you have got a bunch of tools that are running in TFS and they're using the client uh, object model, fine. Um, but in the future, those are going to kind of be deprecated, and we want everybody to start focusing on uh, putting changing those over into using the REST APIs. Cool.
0: But so even that deprecation period, I know at least historically, I've seen the team. You guys, that, that deprecation isn't like month to month; it's like year to year, or release yeah. to
2: release. Yeah, it's a it's a long ways out still. Um, you know, But uh, obviously, if somebody's moving over now, we'd encourage them to use the REST APIs because obviously they're just much more efficient and easier to use. Um, and if you start using the things like the object model, then you're more subject to things like rate limiting inside of VSTS, where if you're doing something that's not very performant, well, you're going to run into those rate limits, and then um, that could be a problem where the, the, the REST APIs are, you know, have things in there for like batch and that kind of stuff to make things a lot easier to, uh, to you know, use in your tools that are still performant, and then you don't run into those rate limits.
0: That uh, means if we're talking about one of my apps. I'm like gonna have to tweak. I'm, I created one before the object model was actually av- available on NuGet. Kind of scraped it and made it work. And that's
1: yeah. It'll still magically work. Ago. It's just you know, uh, just beware that um, you know it, it'll still work for the you know it, it still works. So don't don't worry about it in terms of this migration. Right, 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 right. Well, in terms of authentication, uh, so- I mean, authentication wise. What, how are you authenticating right now, Greg? Are you using Active Directory credentials for this thing to connect in? So, yeah. I mean, what what, what sort of um, authentication mechanism do they want to switch to, guys? So they move into personal access tokens or, you know, what, what do they do? I, th-
2: I think you can go with both. I think a lot of times personal access token is your best way to do it for, like, a service account. And then so all your tools are running off a single personal access token. That's probably the m- most recommended way of doing it. Um, we have a bunch of samples that I can send you guys the links for uh, in GitHub that has a bunch of, like, here's how you run and test the REST APIs. Here's a bunch of examples for you. Here's a bunch of scenarios that you can cover. Uh, and then, you know, it has all the authentication-type methods in there as well that you can go ahead and follow through and, and use. Um, and those samples are strictly just for, like, that, right? It's like, hey, I need to, how do I do this inside of the REST APIs when I used to do an object model? What's different? And then I can go, and I can go see all those samples and use them and execute them out of my own collections and see how they work.
1: So do all the permissions come over as well? Like, say if they've got a bunch of AD groups and then they move out and they're now, you know, the AD is replicated out to the AAD, But do, do, do all the permissions transfer over to these new projects?
3: Um, you know, that is a common scenario that a lot of, you know, large enterprise customers do. They have, you know, AD groups to manage everything in TFS so no one has to go in and, like, add a specific user there. And, you know, the, the good news is uh, it, it can work after import and everything is uh, still good there. Uh, so the big thing when you're doing import, and this kind of is a good time to touch quickly on, you know, how identities are actually imported because that will help answer the whole group question here. Uh, when we import identities, they're imported one of two way, either actively or historically. And historic identities are ones that um, if you have an Azure AD Connect set up or basically an AD to AAD sync, um, it will propagate across the on-prem identity SID into the AAD identity's on-premise security identifier property. Uh, and if we can find a matching SID to on-premise security identifier property, then we can import those users actively. They'll have access to the account. All their history will be linked to their AAD identity. And, you know, they'll, they'll be like a regular user in a VSTS account that has permissions to access it. Where historical ones where we are unable to find that kind of a match, then what ends up happening is, though. Know, they're still there, but it's kind of like a scenario where if I was added to your VSTS account today, I did some changes, checked in some code. So there's some history artifacts related to me. And then you went and removed me from that account. And you can still search up what I've done. I'm just not actually a member of the account. That's what those historical users look like. And those concepts still apply to, you know, AD groups. They can be included as part of the sync. And as long as they're included as part of the sync, that same SID to on-premise security identifier uh, property translation happens. So You effectively end up post-import if you have that sync set up, and, you know, this is why it's good to do a dry run so you can make sure everything looks good there. Um, All those AD groups you were using for permissibility on-prem get replaced with their AAD group counterparts, and your permissions just work um, the way you expected them to and as they did in on-prem.
0: Cool, cool. So uh, how long have you guys – wait, wait. One question. So I've done that import and our VSTS is working great. Our on-prem TFS is still there. How long is the best practice to keep that on-prem TFS around?
3: So I would say once you have gone ahead and migrated and, you know, if it's been like 48 hours and your team is fully committed and fully on the VSTS, I would say go ahead and shelve your TFS instance. A lot of customers, you know, they take their TFS instance offline when they do that production import and everything goes well. They just never bring it back online. Um, you know, I would highly advise against taking the hard drive out and throwing it in the trash, <laughs> <laughs> saying goodbye. I would, you know, keep, keep it somewhere just in case you ever want to go back to it. But, you know, once your team is committed and on the STS, so, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about really having to reattach that collection again and, and use it. You're kind of, you know, you're in the cloud now. Um, move forward.
0: Cool. So, Dan, what inherited versus hosted XML? Yeah. Like for work item definitions and, and, you know, releases and imports. What what what, what do you mean?
2: What is yeah, that? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple things that um, – and we kind of touch on this when we talk about importing, right? And so there's two different types of ways of doing process customization. There's hosted XML and inherited. So let me start with the new way, which is inherited. So if you create a new VSTS account – and you want to do process customization, you're using all the cool new and inherited features, right? You can go in and you say, hey, look at Agile. I want to create an inherited process from that, and then I want to add a couple fields to it. So that essentially inherits the Agile process, but it also then adds a couple fields to it. And then I can switch between inherited processes pretty easily. Uh, hosted XML is more in line with the way current TFS works, right? It's uh, each project has its own process, and um, you know I change it through the XML and the WITs and that kind of thing. So when you do data import, um, we do a couple different things. So the first thing we do is we go and just check it to make sure it'll fall into hosted XML. And so if you have any process customizations whatsoever, you automatically drop into that hosted XML bucket. And so let's say you have 20 projects and you only customize one project. Guess what? All 20 are now going to be hosted XML. Um, those other 19 might be using out of a box, like an out of box Agile. But for right now, we drop you into so every project is using hosted XML. And so that's kind of a, another little gotcha there. Um, And when we say hosted XML, it's, it's, again, you can still modify it the way you want to, um, you know, you modify the XML, that kind of thing, you modify the widths, but you don't use wood admin anymore. You're basically using the UI inside of Team Services, where you basically zip up a process. Um, It checks the whole process, tells you if there's errors, and then applies that to the project. And so, the gotcha there gets interesting because um, you know we have a lot of customers who again have 19 projects that are all legit out of box agile and they don't want to go to this and XML thing because it's a pain in the neck um, for and then they move over and they because it didn't read the documentation um, they get they're surprised and so that's one potential gotcha for people. Now the good news there is is we're actually doing a bunch of investments where uh, over the next sprint or two we'll allow you to say. Um, oh, you're using out-of-box for this particular project? Great, we'll drop you an inherited. Or if, it's a, um, if the next one happens to be customized, we'll drop that in a hosted XML. So it'll kind of mix and match appropriate to the project rather than saying it's all or nothing type thing. Um, so I thought that was a good, important one to bring up because we had a lot of people who are like, once they migrate over, um, they're like, man, I don't want to be using this hosted XML stuff. I want to just be using Agile. How do I move? Uh, and, you know, the downside is right now we haven't invested in how do you migrate from hosted XML processes into inherited because um, that's eventually where we want to go is we want to drop hosted XML altogether and just everything just be inherited. Um, but at the meantime, for the, for the time being, we're still kind of working on um finishing up our investments on making sure there's feature parity there. And then the next thing we'll invest in is how do we migrate from kind of that old school XML into the new school inherited.
0: So one thing I was going to give you guys a hard time about,
2: and I promised
0: Oscar, my partner in crime, that I'd give you a hard time about is uh, 2017.2 support in the migration tool. Because when I looked at it, as soon as it came out and we're a week later, like, oh, we can't roll .2 update to my on-prem because it's not supported in the migration. Then, of course, I go there today and I see .2 is now supported. So, <laughs> What is the normal timeframe between a TFS update and migrator support? Oh yeah,
3: yeah we, this, we tried is, this to... is a great question. Um, sorry, sorry, Andy. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna grab this one since it comes up a okay. lot. Um, you know, we we try to be as close to the RTW release uh, as possible for a given update or next release. Uh, it, it's just a matter of sometimes you know we we get an official build that is you know blessed as the RTW build that's going to be released uh, kind of halfway through a sprint, and then you know we we go and build the version of TMS migrator that Works for that, and then go add support into the import service and kind of getting that all deployed. Um, you know, our deployments normally happen the second week of a sprint, so if we release at the start of a first sprint, then we're you know we're two weeks out from being able to get that kind of rolled out there you know, and supported. So there there is a on average a two to three week lag time from actually having an RTW release come out to us actually supporting it for import. And you know, we try to get the TFS migrator tool out there. So people can do some validations early, but you know, even for update two right now, I'd say you know the import command itself is not up and working, and it probably won't be until about early next week. And you know, it's it's just an unfortunate side effect of kind of the process right now, and uh, you know, uh, it's not something that I'm I'm super happy with, but you know, it's something that we deal with once every three to four months, and then it's kind of that bad dream you forget about.
0: <laughs> and okay, now Brian. Brian Harry talked about the first release candidate for TFS vNext is imminent. Uh, the the release cadence seems to be for TFS on prem seems to be increasing. It's you know, almost annual now, where we we have a new fully numbered release. Mm-hmm. The importer tool is always going to be two back, right? Uh, a, a RTW and you know uh, the one RTW minus one.
3: Yeah, so it's always going to be N and N-1 support
0: for, uh, for actually being able to import. So if you've got a lot of people now who are on 2017.2, there will be a 2017.3. I know Brian already committed to that, but I don't know if there's going to be one after that. And then TFSV next. that cadence – basically, my advice is – and what I'm looking at, my advice to myself, let alone the rest of you guys listening, is that if you're thinking about moving to VSTS using the data migration tool – uh, you should be rather aggressive. W- would you both agree? Uh,
3: I, I guess it depends on what on what you define as aggressive. I think a lot of, you know, very large customers, you know, in the worst case scenarios have picked up some of these projects and have finished in, you know, three to four months. I think on average, when I look back at, you know, the versions that we supported starting all the way back to like 2015 update one, I think was one of the first ones when we first released TMS Migrator. Um, you know, we generally keep support for a version for around six months. Uh, the release cadence is generally about once a quarter here or so for like an update or, a, you know, a, or if, if it's the major releases turn to come out, then it's the major release, not an update. Um, so my, my advice is just, you know, if you can move to always move to the one that's newer in support. So in this case, it would be update Two today of 2017. Uh, and, and try to avoid going to the the n minus one supported version if you're just starting your
2: import process.
0: Uh, Dan, you have to go.
2: I'm good for another five to eight minutes.
0: All right, well, I don't know I've got this thing that I want to talk to uh, Rogan's email he sent out yesterday on the ALM chance list and I, I just loved the description that you put there, Rogan, about the behind baseball stuff. Now we're at forty five minutes into the show. I'm not sure if we'll have time for this. Uh, can you, in five minutes or less, summarize uh-huh. that?
3: I I think I can do it. I I will accept your challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this kind of this kind of goes back to the conversation I, I think we had a little bit earlier in this uh, this podcast about uh, you know hey release management just isn't there right now. Uh, and and I always get people, and the most common thing is hey you can import my builds, but you can't import release. So it's not rocket science. Why can't we have release? <laughs> uh, and, and, and to some aspects, it, it, it kind of is rocket science. And let me tell you why. Um, so, if, you know, when you think about on-prem TFS, it's, it's kind of like this one service you go and install on a machine, I know you can have multiple ATs over the place, but effectively it's, it's one service. It's got your release. It's got your build. It's got, it's got everything you want to do there. And you can go add extensions. When we talk about a cloud service, you know, it's architected in a way where there's a series of microservices that kind of make up um, all the different offerings that you, the the end customer call visual studio team services. um, And, you know, and it, it's been a transformation for us. I would say when I started on the team, we definitely weren't super micro-architecture. There was a couple big services. But over time, as we've you know spun up package management, spun up the new release management system, we've kind of said, hey, these are going to be their own separate services kind of standing out there. Um, and you know, But we still have this one big microservice, which is kind of ironic to say big, and then microservice <laughs> after it that we double, ironically, called TFS internally. And that kind of has a lot of the... Um, features still in it, you know, and I think maybe in the future we'll see those split out in their own microservices. But you know, for now it has things like work item tracking, backlog agile management, builds are in there. Uh, it, it contains a, a large portion of all the feature sets that are, are used on a VSTS account. So effectively when the import started, it would just it would copy the identity data and then it would go and copy all this other data into this TFS service. Uh, and and that would be it, and we we'd have it come up. Unfortunately, though, because that release management service is a separate service, it didn't get the data. So there, you know, your release management data, well, it's there in TFS. It's not on the release management service, and that's where it needs to be. Uh, so we you know we kind of sat down and we're bumping our heads on you know how do we solve this? And you know I we could have solved it in like a sprint or two and just said you know we'll just copy all the data everywhere and then they'll naturally get the data they need. But of course, that just doesn't scale when you think about in terms of space. If someone has a terabyte collection and only three gigs is actual release management, you know, definitions and stuff release management needs to run, copying a terabyte to that service just doesn't make sense. So we've effectively had to go and build a system that lets all these microservices say, hey, here's here's the data I need and here's how you can get it out of this collection. And then the import service has to go, thank you, go grab that data based on those set of filters and the criteria they use to define the data they need and actually go and hand that off to them. So that way they just get the sub, you know, release management just gets the subset of data that it needs uh, to actually go and do the import. You know, that that's where the rocket science kind of comes in because it's, it's definitely not a simple problem. And it's something that my team has been working on for a very long time, a couple of months now. And, you know, we're we're, we're getting close. I'd say we, we have most of the infrastructure in place we have the release management team, you know, hooking in and we're doing some tests, you know, kind of on local developer boxes. And I'm hopeful that in the next sprint or two, we can start having some you know, private previews of this testing out of RM import and that we can, you know, get RM included with imports and then package management and then all those other ones that, you know, we need to get included that we have listed online. So we can kind of get that complete picture kind of filled up there for the import.
0: Cool. Cool. That's awesome. Well, um, Dan, how can people contact you if they want to uh, connect with you?
2: Well, for me personally, it's just through my email, uh, d- dan.hellum at microsoft.com. But we also have a, an alias for the TFS Migrator. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Rogan, but it's just TFS Migrator or is it, no, TFS uh, Data BSTS Import? TS Data Import
3: at microsoft.com. And that And that goes to like Dan, it goes to me, and it goes to pretty much every person that works on the import process. So someone definitely... Um, you, know, you normally hear from me, so uh, but you might hear from someone else as well. Uh, so basically it gets eyes on, on my whole team on, on emails so you go there.
0: Awesome. Great. Well, uh, gentlemen, it's about time to wrap this up. I do have one voicemail that I wanted to play before we go. And if you guys listening want to send us a voicemail, listen to this. This is Greg, and I'm testing our voicemail and sharing it with all of you, you know you guys could be guest hosts. You can give us your feedback, you can give us your wines, you can give us your questions, however you want, via voice. And it's one four two five two three three eight three seven nine. And again, oh, and Always, not just again, but as always. Thank you for listening. That's right. You guys can be guest hosts. All you have to do is call in. one 233 we are available on Twitter, at Radio TFS. Email, Radio TFS at Outlook.com. We're on Facebook as well, slash Radio TFS. Daniel Rogan, thank you guys very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I enjoyed
2: it. Yeah, thanks a lot.
0: Certainly. And ladies and gentlemen, as always... Thank you for listening to Radio TFS.